we'll look into this passage, this final chapter, final section of the book of Hebrews. Every Christian knows that text, don't they? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, that's Hebrews 13, verse 8. Uh, possibly rivals Romans 3.23 as the verse most commonly quoted out of context. Um, what is the context of it? Actually, when you look at the passage of the Scripture in its place, as we were reading through, its place in the logical development of the chapter is not actually quite clear. It sits between two sections on holiness, like a kind of jewel. And so I'd suggest, in fact, it's not so much in context as it is the context. This verse is the context of the material that surrounds it. It's what makes sense of the material that surrounds it. It's the central truth in which the whole passage, and one could even say the whole letter, revolves. I don't know whether you've ever thought this, that um, you could argue that actually, of course, it isn't true in a formal sense, because the Son of the Divine Son is the same yesterday, today, and forever, of course. But that, as we learned in chapter 1, verse 2, but Jesus, we're told in chapter 1 and chapter 2, did things, changed status in a sense. Jesus made purification for sins and then sat down. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He was made lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor. He tasted death. Chapter 2, verse 9. We were told he was made like his brothers. He made atonement. He was tempted as we are. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. So what is the writer getting at here? What he's doing, I think, is ascribing the eternal nature of the Godhead to the human Jesus here. The anointed king of the house of David. Remember that he's trying to dissuade his readers to going back, from going back to Jewish rituals. And if we think on those terms, we can see that he's saying that it is in Jesus Christ that the Old Testament makes sense. If they were not for Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and all those stuff that went on in the Old Testament, leading the people to the promised land, sacrifices and so on, would not really have made any sense. It only makes sense in Jesus Christ because there only ever was one sacrifice. There were many kings in the Old Testament, but really there was only ever one king. And uh, there were two or three, well, four if you count the tabernacle, four temples built, uh, three of them recorded in the Old Testament, and then Herod built one after that. Um, but there was really only one true temple, and that is the one where Jesus Christ is the eternal priest, as we read in the central section of the book. It's in Jesus Christ, not in any restored temple worship, that the future is to be found. And so this one sentence stands there as a summary for all the previous arguments that we've read in the book, in the letter. That Jesus Christ is what makes sense of it all. In that sense, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So having said that, what do we find in this final chapter? 
It's it, as I say, by way of a sort of appendix to the letter. And it consists of two parts, verses 1 to 19, form what I might describe as a kind of holiness checklist, interspersed with a few words of commentary. And then in the final few verses, in 20 to 25, there's some personal requests, news, and greetings. So I'd suggest we divide up the passage and look at it, as I've shown you on the screen there. Um, the first section, verses 1 to 7, I've called practical ethics. And then we have that single verse, verse 8. And then a, a similar cycle of things in verse 9 to 19, which I've called spiritual ethics, although it's uh, really, uh, you can't really divide them up that way. I couldn't really think of better titles, but for the sake of uh, saying something. And then at the end is the prayer, exhortation, and greetings. There are certain parallels between um, verses 1 to 7 and verses uh, 9 to 19, although um, they're not very close parallels, but the various general structure is the same, and both sections end, for instance, with mentioning the leaders, as you may have noticed when we were reading it. And this is, of course, it isn't a detailed exposition of Christian ethics. It couldn't be in such a small, a short passage, but instead it's a brief summary of the things that the writer thinks are important. And as such, it's useful, perhaps, for focusing on the main issues. So I say we can look at it as a kind of checklist for our personal and corporate Christian life and holiness, and we can go through, and let's go through and see if we can tick the boxes or not. So uh, verses 1 to 7, first of all, the first three verses refer more to the community and verses 4 to 6 are more on personal life, but of course they're all interrelated. Avoiding greed is an essential prerequisite, for instance, to hospitality, (laughs) of helping those in need. But still, let's look through them. The first three relate items refer to community living and you look, if you look at them you notice that they move outward in scope starts first of all with love love starts at home he says the, the brothers and sisters love the brothers and sisters um, the implication being clearly he means the local church the church to which the letter is written the church when it's read out that you love those closest to you your church family first. Chris has pointed this out to us in numerous occasions that there are advantages in being a smaller church in that um, it's possible to get to know everybody and to show real love for those who are gathered together and who we think of as our church family. Love starts at home. And that intimate contact makes love easier in one sense, but of course in another sense it also makes it harder because um, the people are, there are all the opportunities to offend each other and of course families can blow themselves apart quite easily and so the writer reminds us that we need to start in our church life by focusing on that, that we love each other we start there, we won't go too far wrong but then if you've got the hang of this love among the brothers and sisters you can try and export it 
verses 2 and 3 probably refer mainly to hospitality to other believers from other churches, but maybe not exclusively so, maybe more generally in the community. And what does he tell us to do? Well, keep a hospitable house, even to those you do not know personally. If uh, brothers and sisters in Christ traveling to Brighton for some reason or other, particularly if they're um, on the Lord's business explicitly, but I don't think even necessarily that. We should try and keep a hospita- his, hos- sorry. <laughs> hospitable house. Can't say that. <laughs> even though we don't know, say even to people we don't know. And uh, the writer sort of rather quaintly makes the point your visitor might actually be an angel. <laughs> Whether he means that literally or whether he means a messenger of God, I don't know. But uh, he's saying that you might be maintaining, you might be giving hospitality to a very messenger of God. And I think we do need to be hospitable even to those who are not necessarily of, of the faith. Um, I don't think there's an exhortation to be foolish. I mean, your children and even your possessions do need some protection. Of course, these houses. Um, would have had bigger households in those days and perhaps there would have been servants and people around and it made it a bit easier to offer hospitality without foolishness but still we do need to be prepared to welcome people into our houses and into our fellowship and of course that comes with a caveat itself it doesn't say it here but if we look in John he says don't welcome those who of course are bringing a different message than the message of Jesus Christ if you want to help them on their way but nonetheless try to keep out the welcome mat that's what uh, we're to do who knows who you might be entertaining and then he goes one step further to something that we're cautious of the, the conscious of at the moment we look around and we get news through the internet perhaps in those days it would have taken weeks for them to find out that so and so had been arrested or that uh, that the church in some town somewhere was being persecuted now of course it takes seconds the news gets to us we have too much news in a sense don't we almost but the command still stands that we need to pray for those who are suffering. And I think Im- implied in that is do what we can to help them. If we, uh, obviously we can't solve all the problems of the world from Brighton, but pray for those who are suffering, sympathize with them. It's not always easy to do that, is it? You know, a natural human reaction is I'm all right, Jack, it's your problem. But, um, no, we're told to sympathize with them as if we ourselves were suffering. And I'm sure if we can do anything to help, we should be doing so. So, how do we live in the community? Love is the key word, isn't it? Love to those of our immediate family, and then love exported to those who might come to us, and those who can't come to us because they're in prison or otherwise suffering. And then he moves on to items about more personal living. And um, he he mentions, as you'll see, two things particularly. First of all, that we honor marriage. In other words, that, um, well, 
two things. We honor marriage and we practice generosity. And why does he pick those out particularly? Well, I think probably because lust and greed are deadly enemies of the godly life. Because through that, they undermine faithfulness. They cause jealousy and division. Wife swapping is a no-no, I'm afraid, in the church. Um, because although we're one family, we, uh, marriage is to be honored, he tells us. And notice what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us to abstain from sex and take a vow of poverty, as the church has occasionally done, perhaps in medieval times particularly. He doesn't tell us to do either of those things. He tells us to rejoice in the wife or husband that you have, or the gift of singleness and celibacy, if that's what the Lord has given you. And to be content with the gifts that, that God gives, not to reject them, but not always demanding more either. And then perhaps this sounds a bit tough. And so he gives us two helps. How to be content. How can we be generous and content? And first of all, he suggests that we actively practice the presence of God. Verses 5 and 6, he reminds us from the scriptures that the Lord has promised to be always with us and I think he's not just saying yeah we, we note that that's interesting but he's saying we should be conscious of that and we should be conscious we should aim to practice the presence of God in our lives I think we should to use the old phrase have a personal relationship with Jesus I think that's gone a bit out of uh, out of uh, fashion now but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to say perhaps we should be Reminding ourselves always that God is with us and making sure that we're with him and that we're conscious of his presence in our lives. And as part of that, we can say it's exercising faith as an act of will. I think it's true to say in Hebrews that faith is not so much something you have as something you say and do. It's not that you find yourself in a state of believing, but that you actively make a decision and an effort to believe and remember that the Lord is indeed with us and behave accordingly because that's what faith is about. And um, he also gives us a slightly more earthly uh, help and he says, well, look, you've got some role models. Use your leaders as role models. Emulate their way of life. Emulate their faith. Now, of course, that puts a bit of a responsibility on the leaders. <laughs> we were looking at uh, elders and deacons and the uh, qualifications, how they must uh, be exemplary in their uh, life. They'd be exemplary so that they can be examples. And uh, those of us who are elders and deacons, I'm sure, feel that so often we don't live up to that to be the examples that we should be. But um, that's what... Jesus, that's what the writer tells them to do anyway. That in a sense they are the under shepherds, the representatives of the shepherd amongst you and so you should be able to copy them and emulate the, the faith of the leaders. But then he reminds us in verse 8 as I've already said that Christ is at the centre of all this. 
properly considered, it's all about Jesus. The uh, leaders are hopefully showing the life in Jesus. So let's um, move on to that second checklist, which um, has a slightly um, different emphasis, verses 9 to 19. And he starts by talking about doctrinal purity. He says, make sure what is taught amongst you is, is sound teaching. We were thinking about this this morning, weren't we, a bit? Um, I can give you a phrase. We might say what we need is reformation, not innovation. Um, it says on our website, we're a church in the reformed tradition. And um, I guess we'd... I'd, I'd sign up to that, I guess. I hope we are a uh, church in the Reformed tradition. Of course, we may not be Reformed enough. Some people might say we're not Reformed enough. But um, if you mean Reformed in the past tense, then I don't think that is really in the Reformed tradition. The tradition, the buzzword of the Reformers was always being Reformed, always being remade by the Word of God. So remember, it is by the word of God. It's sound doctrine that remakes the church. The Lord has yet more light and truth to break forth from his word. So I've said reformation, not innovation. I mean, I'm not suggesting that obviously innovation is useful sometimes. But uh, the, it is reformation by the word of God which really causes the church to grow, as we were thinking this morning. It's not to say, of course, we do need plans and we do need to interpret, contextualize, is a trendy word, I think, the, the gospel to those around us. But it is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's not a different gospel. And false teaching, he reminds us, detracts from grace. Whenever you move aside in any way you turn aside into a bypath as, uh, as uh, John Bunyan put it in Pilgrim's Progress whenever you do that you detract from grace you put something else in the place of grace in this case it was eating sacrificed animals I don't suppose we have much of a problem with eating sacrificed animals but we're always ready to put something else in the place of grace aren't we rules and regulations or some new buzzword, some new teaching but anything that detracts from grace is not sound doctrine we feed on Christ by faith and anything else won't provide any spiritual benefit like those dead animals didn't really provide any spiritual benefit at all it was only through Jesus Christ that they had any efficacy at all and then he um, with this idea of the Old Testament sacrifices in his mind he um, pointed out that the priests were allowed to eat the meat of many of the sacrifices but not the sacrifice of atonement on the day of atonement in picture, pictorially speaking at least that carcass was too contaminated by sin to be eaten it had to be taken outside the camp and it had to be 
the law required that it had to be removed from society and burned because it was disgraceful. And yet, it makes an odd point here, doesn't it? An interesting point, but <laughs> an effective one, I think. He says that actually, spiritually and pictorially in the communion, we eat the body and blood of our sacrifice of atonement. And so that makes us spiritual outsiders. Jesus was the sacrifice who bore the disgrace and was taken outside the camp, outside the city, to be destroyed. And so that's where Jesus is in that sense. <laughs> He's outside the um, polite society, perhaps you might <laughs> put it in those terms. The polite fictions of Judaism or of the world more generally. And so the writer says, you've got to remember to be an outsider. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pretend to be what you're not. And don't make it look palatable sometimes when it isn't. You have to be prepared to be an outsider with Jesus because that's where he's to be found, verse 12, outside the camp. Why would we want to do this, though? Well, he reminds us again in verse 40, verse 14, what uh, he said so much about in chapter 11, that the city we're in is not the city. And so we don't mind being outside that city because it's not the city. It's not the city whose builder and architect is God. And he still keeps sacrifice in mind and then he moves on to verse 15 and 16. And I say there, are, there is a certain parallelism here with the um, first cycle that we looked at. In verses 5 and 6, we were told to practice the presence of God. And in these verses, 15 and 16, we're told to practice the worship of God. Um, and he has this idea of sacrifice still in mind, I think, that under the Old Testament law, um, if you, something good had happened to you, you were supposed to go and give a, a sacrifice um, to a thanksgiving. Um, to say thanks to, to God for the uh, blessing that he'd given you. These were the ones that the, uh, the, the Levites were allowed to eat, the priests were allowed to eat. But there's no more animal sacrifices in the new covenant. So what sacrifices of thanksgiving are we supposed to bring to, the, to, to God, to the Heavenly Father? But we, he tells us, have got better sacrifices than dead animals to offer. And what are they? Well, he lists them for us here, doesn't he? He says, praise to the Father, confession of Christ, and in a sense going back to where he started, doing good and helping others. If we've had some blessing from God, we should as it were, be passing it on and helping others and doing good to them. And the, the writer reminds us that these are the sacrifices that God really wants. And of course that was true in the Old Testament as well. I just forgot that sometimes. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And these are the true sacrifices that that sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise that God wants to receive 
praise to God, confession of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing good and helping others. And so that last point reminds us, doesn't he, that you can't really separate out practical and spiritual ethics because it's all holiness really. They're not really that different. In verse 7, we were told to remember our leaders. In verse 17 and 18, uh, sorry, I should have changed the slide. We're told to respect and to obey them. The first phrase there probably means to have confidence in and respect them. But we are told to submit to their authority, certainly. Why is that, we might ask reasonably? Well, because they're appointed as spiritual guardians. But frankly, we have a bit of a problem with that, don't we? <laughs> Certainly in Western society we do. So what are we to make of it? Well, the first thing I think we need to remember is that the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. We may run our churches on kind of democratic lines. Our independent churches, we tend to do that. But the church of heaven is not really a democracy. In fact, what is it? It's an absolute monarchy. There is an absolute king. There is one king over all, Jesus Christ. And his authorized officers, the under-shepherds, exercise his authority in that sense. The problem we have with this, of course, is that to us, absolute monarchy equals tyranny, doesn't it? That's what we feel that whenever there's been an absolute monarch, absolute power is corrupted absolutely and you land up with a tyrant. That's why we like democracy because we like checks and balances that we cannot have our rulers with absolute power. But the kingdom of heaven is not run that way. It isn't. There is one absolute king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to remember also that our king is the servant king. The son of man came to seek and to serve that which was lost. This king was once in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan to put aside and to take the chance to become an earthly ruler and he would have become a worse tyrant than the Roman emperors if he'd submitted to that um, submitted to that uh, temptation but he rejected it he said you must worship no one but the father God himself and so our king is a servant king and so our leaders are servants they're there not to enslave us but to guarantee our freedom now they do have executive powers one way or another to uh, restrain those who want to undermine those freedoms. They do have the authority to put people out of the church. And when we, um, uh, when we, in a part of our membership service, we agree to submit to the authority of the elders and of the assembly, the church as a whole. But they are there, as I say, not to restrict our freedom in some way, and certainly not to turn us into a cult. As who was it saying yesterday? No, it was Phil, wasn't it? it was saying a week or two ago. Submitting to elders is not a matter. The elders are not there to tell you what colour to paint your bathroom or even where to go on holiday, but rather 
to ensure that if you do either of those things, you do them to the glory of God. And what happens when we submit to that authority? Is it arduous? Is it horrid for both us and them? It can be, can't it? To be a, a manager or a boss can be a, a horrible job sometimes. can be dreadfully stressful. Uh, but he says, no, you want them to be to have joy in their work and I think he's suggesting there he doesn't say it explicitly that in fact that will be a shared joy that we will rejoice together when the church the local church and the church as a whole runs properly and is really subject to the authority of King Jesus in the way that it should be this is a rule of joy not of tyranny And I would remind you, of course, that we're only required to obey our leaders insofar as they reflect the authority of Christ. I mean, he's warned, us, warned against teachers earlier who deviate from the gospel. You shouldn't follow them. You shouldn't obey them. Um, and, of course, leaders, unlike Christ himself, can fall to the temptation to abuse their power. And so having made the point of obedience... The writer is acutely conscious of his own responsibility. And so in verse um, 18, sorry, that should say verse 18, not verse 8 there, typo, sorry. Verse 18, he suggests that we better pray for the leaders. He actually says us. Um, so uh, he, not, not the elders of the church where the people are, but he says us, presumably meaning... Um, well, not all Christian leaders in the world, I don't think, or the rest of the verse wouldn't read true. Whatever the group of elders or apostles with which he's associated is, we need to pray for them. But I think we need to pray for all church leaders, <laughs> is the implication. He says they have a, claim, a clear conscience and trust, we hope, that um, anyone who has a position of leadership in this church does have do so with a clear conscience and yet I suspect neither, none of us has a totally clear conscience we all do things that we're ashamed of and wish we hadn't done or said but nevertheless we do aim to, to live with a clear conscience but we can't take that for granted we need the prayer of God's peoples in order that we can remain that way and the church leadership does remain pure and faithful to the word of God. And so it is essential to pray for those who are leaders in the church and in the churches generally. They need the prayer of God's people to stay that way. And in verse 19, um, he comes down to I. Verse 18 is in the uh, plural, but verse 19 is in the singular, I believe. He says... Um, I want to remain faithful. I want to speak the word of God and exercise the word of God faithfully. And he sees his responsibility is to his readers and, so, and to his hearers and to us 2,000 or so years later. That what he writes and sort says would be generally the word of God. So let's now move on to that closing section.
I suppose he felt at this point, well, he couldn't really ask his hearers and readers to pray for him unless he was already also prepared to pray for them. So that's what he does in verses 20 and 21. The basis of this prayer for them is, is interesting, isn't it? He's been reminding them all the way through that their hope is in Jesus Christ, in the priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the new and better covenant. And so he makes that the basis of his prayer here. He says that it is on, I'm praying for them, on the basis of the new covenant and the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrecting power that is found in Jesus Christ. He's not working on the basis of some vague good wish. He's working on the basis of a certain knowledge of grace. And that shapes the prayer's content, doesn't it? He prays that his readers and his colleagues should all be equipped for the work and the task that God has set in front of them. Whatever that might be explicitly, he doesn't say. But he says that they all have a work in the kingdom. And whatever that work is, then his prayer is that God would equip them for that work. As I say, he does it on the base, basis of grace, and so he's confident of a pos positive answer because he knows that it's actually God himself who is at work in, in them in order to glorify Jesus Christ. Very short prayer, but a great one, and we're going to actually we're going to sing it at the end of our talk and so the writer's nearly done tells us in verse 22 tells us he's written a short letter or he's written briefly well it's a bit of a relative term that isn't it perhaps he means it's short in comparison to all the things he would have liked to have said to them all the way through he's repeatedly warned them of what happens to people who ignore the word of God when it comes. And now he said, well, my letter is the word of God that's come to you. Make sure you don't ignore it. doesn't put it quite as strongly. He says, bear with it. But I think he's, what he's saying there is listen to it. Take it seriously. Remember what happened to those people who rejected the word of God in the old covenant. So when the word of God comes to you, take it seriously. If you ignore the word of God when it comes, the result is always judgment and destruction of one kind or another. So it was the word of God to his readers and it's the word of God to us 2,000 years later and we need to take it seriously. It carries the same warning. We ignore it at our peril. Then he moves on finally to some final greetings. Now the good news, he says in verse 23, perhaps, uh, I don't know, maybe he felt that it had been a bit too gloomy with all this talk of suffering and persecution and shedding blood and so on. So he's got a bit of good news for them. Our brother Timothy has been released. It's one reason we um, think this might be a late letter because... We don't, I don't think we actually read of that in Acts, do we? I don't remember. We ever read of T Timothy being arrested in Acts. Uh, but he obviously was at some point. <laughs> but they let him out. It's not all bad news. 
he's been released from arrest. And in, there's still opportunity, in spite of all kinds of opposition, for God's people to preach and teach the word. And so he finishes. You might think with all these warnings he's given us throughout the letter, he might finish with a warning. But actually he doesn't. He finishes instead with a greeting. He wants to greet all God's people. Why? Because they're united in love and purpose. Even those at the heart of Rome's power in Italy, where they live under a tyrannical government. But even there, they send greetings. Greetings are joy, aren't they? You don't send greetings and, you know, you sort of, oh dear. I've had a terrible time, and you might want to say that to your fellow Christians sometimes, but you wouldn't call that a greeting, would you? <laughs> greeting is to say, well, you know, we're rejoicing, and I want you to rejoice with us. And perhaps we should learn from that, that when suffering comes, whether it comes to us here or those we know closely or whether it comes to believers in other parts of the world who suffer yes we should be praying for them perhaps we should be sending them greetings but no maybe we ought to uh, I don't know whether Barnabas Trust and other organizations do that but often they send us greetings don't they do we send greetings back do we say the, the, the brothers and sisters in Brighton send you greetings perhaps we should But to expand that thought, to take a, uh, another whole scroll. And so he cuts to the chase, doesn't he, in the end. Where does he finish? What really matters is grace. That God's favor should rest on them. them who, those who heard the word, read the letter, had it read to them. Those in Italy and elsewhere who sent the letter. That grace should be with them. And on all God's people, the grace of God should be with us. And that's where he ends, with grace, because this letter is all a letter of grace. So, hymn number 802 by Nick Needham, if you look at it, is in fact that prayer. We, we didn't have music, so I wasn't able to check what the... Um, well, there wasn't any point in checking what the set tune for this was, but we can sing it to the uh, tune of the God of Abraham praise, so that's what we're going to do. And you'll notice that it is, it is that prayer from the end of Hebrews. May the God of peace raise from the dead the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus our head. It's that prayer set, made into verse. So, Chris, if you'd like to... Uh, Lead us and